into the shop the other day and the woman said Jesus is not going to ask us what our doctrine was all he's going to be interested in is whether we loved him and I, I've been thinking about that you know is that right you know as long as we, we loved him he's not going to worry really what our doctrine was about and I put down a lot of texts here a whole heap of them for you to read as we go through thinking about this whole business. Jesus definitely said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If we, if we love him, we must keep his commandments. Then in John 14, 23 says, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. So if we love Jesus and claim to love him in our lives and have accepted him as our Savior, then we have to keep his words. He says again in John 15, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. If we keep his commandments, we will abide in his love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. He kept his Father's commandments and he abided in his Father's love. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. So as well as following the Lord Jesus and loving him, the apostles then gave these converts, they gave them decrees and delivered them what they had to do, what they had to keep. And Paul writing to Timothy says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called. And we're still, it's amazing that Paul and Timothy have the same problem that we have from a lot of the scientific people. He says, avoid all these useless bits of vain talking and babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. They had the same problem that we had from a lot of these evolutionists and others. In Corinthians it says, stand fast in the faith. Watch and stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. Stand fast in what you've been taught. Thessalonians. Paul writing again, he says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions ye have been taught, whether by word or by our epistle. He says, we've written these epistles, how you have to behave, how you have to act, the doctrines you have to have. Stand fast in them. There was one on the Sunday program last week, I think, I think I said this last week, and she said, she was talking about what she believed, and she said, we have to work out what we're comfortable with and go by that. We work out what we think is the right thing, 
and if we're comfortable with that, then we go ahead with it. That's not what Scripture says. The Bible is our standard. It has to be within Scripture. We cannot, each person cannot work out. If you're playing a soccer match, and one of the fellows picks up the ball and starts to run with it, well, he says, I feel more comfortable playing soccer like that. You'd say, that's stupid. But when it comes to religion, we have people picking and choosing and putting bits in and taking bits out, and we're not playing the same game as they are. We're not playing to the same rules. And they're taking bits out of the Bible and putting bits into the Bible and putting extra little bits in and taking bits out. We're not playing to the same rules unless it's in the Bible. We have to cut it out. Hold fast, it says in Timothy, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Everywhere he wrote, every time he wrote, he was telling them to hold fast, to stand fast, to keep, holding fast the faithful word as ye have been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. You are to convince them by sound doctrine. Out of the scriptures, we saw in Acts, when Paul went to Thessalonia, he said that he discussed things with them out of the scriptures. That's how he convinced them, out of the script, not out of science, not out of his own brain, but he had to discuss it out of why is it? Why is it important that we should consider how we live? Why is it important that we should consider this? How we live. Surely if we live reasonable lives, that's all that's necessary. How is it important? Because the Bible tells us someday we will be judged. There are various judgments in Scripture. And we'll just run through these very quickly. The first, first judgment I'll have done here is Calvary. Christ bore the judgment due to you and me on the cross of Calvary. He bore the judgment for sin on behalf of you and me. He paid the price. For those who accept his offer of salvation, he gives the assurance of peace with God. Isn't that wonderful? Peace with God. God is a jealous God. I won't have let anybody worship me. You're not to worship anybody with me, for I'm a jealous God. God is a God of judgment. You have to read the Old Testament. You see that God is a God of judgment. God poured out his wrath on the Lord Jesus Christ. When Calvary came, Jesus bore our sins on the cross and God poured out his wrath. Now the wrath of God is something which is different even from his judgment. His wrath is, is only going to be displayed on a few occasions and only has been displayed. It was in the flood, I would think, the wrath of God. At Calvary, the wrath of God. And eventually, in the latter days, the wrath of God will be poured out. Jesus bore the wrath of God. That was the judgment for sin. For those who accept his offer of salvation, we can have peace with God. Isn't that amazing? Peace with God 
through the Lord Jesus Christ. But for those who reject the offer of salvation, if we say, no, I'm not going to accept the salvation which is available to me through Jesus Christ, what does the Bible say? It says the wrath of God is upon us. The wrath of God then stays on us, which is a horrifying thought. That we, if we have not accepted the salvation which God gives, if we reject that, the wrath of God still is on us. It's frightening. It says, let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God on the children of disobedience. If we have not got the peace with God through the, our Lord Jesus Christ, the alternative is we have the wrath of God. The next judgment which I just put down here was the judgment of believers, the judgment seat of Christ. And then we're going to have a time when the, the time of Jacob's trouble, when the Jewish nation were going to suffer terribly, when they're attacked by, from all sides, the battle of Armageddon and all that. There's the judgment of the nations in Matthew 25 and judge before the Lord Jesus. But it's a, it's a warning to you and to me, isn't it, as well? How we treat the people around us, how we treat our fellow man. Do we see people around us as the way the Lord Jesus Christ sees them? Or do we just ignore those people around us? And then we have one, the great white throne, in Revelation chapter 20. And we just read the description of this, because it is awesome. And it's good for us to read these things sometime. Revelation 20, 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. There were to be degrees of punishment, apparently, in hell. They're going to be judged according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. There's an awesome judgment awaiting those who die without Christ. But it is the one that is the judgment of believers that I wanted just to look at for a while this morning. The judgment seat of Christ. Now we read those few verses there just to give you the, the passage, the passages which refer to this. Romans 14, verse 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We shall all stand before 
the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But you might say, what about Romans 8? It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. There's no condemnation. It doesn't matter what I do, really, because when I get to heaven, I'm not going to be condemned. It's not like that. Many Christians believe that they can carry on being carnal Christians with, with impunity. You know something? God is watching us. God is watching his people. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Like a referee at Wimbledon. You know, this, the picture of this throne, this judgment throne, is a raised throne where people are being watched and being judged. You know, the referee at Wimbledon, he sits up there and he's watching everything that happened on the court. He's watching the lines if they're out or in and he overrules and he can give his decision and he can overrule the, the local linesmen and things like that. And that's the position. God is watching us. We are being watched. There'll be verses for that, yes. Second Chronicles 16 verse 9, it says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show his might on behalf of those whose heart is blameless toward him. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. God is watching. God is looking for people. It says in Ezekiel, God is watch, wanting people who sigh and cry for the abominations that are happening in the world. Jeremiah 16, verse 17, it says, For mine eyes are upon all their ways. They are not hid from my face. Neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. God is watching. God is watching. In Hebrews, all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God is watching. We used to sing that chorus. Watch your eyes, watch your eyes what they see. There's a father up above looking down in tender love. Watch your eyes, watch your eyes what they see. It's very true, but it's very true. God is watching us. And we need to be careful how we live. It's important. And then, you know, God is keeping a record. God is keeping a record. If you turn to the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi 3 and verse 16. Malachi has been talking about robbing God. People are robbing God. Or attempting to rob God. And he goes on to conclude this chapter. He says, And then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord heard. When we're speaking, God hears. 
and he's watching and he's listening. They that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. God is writing in his book. What has been written in today? What has he written down against my name today? I wonder. It's a challenge, isn't it? What has he written against you today in his book? It's a book of remembrance he's writing. Why is all this being observed and noted? Why? Why is God doing this? Why is he watching us? Why is he writing down and taking note and keeping a record? Well, we read the answer, didn't we? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Very sobering this this morning. I think. I find it in any case. But you know, God is not only thinking about what we do and watching what we do, but he's also analyzing why we do it. What are our motives in doing things? We all have different motives. You know, it, what's at the back of your mind when you're doing something? Why do we come to church? Why do we attend and not attend Bible class? Why do I seek to lead this small church? What is it? What's the motive behind it? Is it because people, do you, do you come because you're friendly with the people who come? You know, someone has said this, and I think this is quite good. Those who attend the morning service, we don't have an evening service, it doesn't apply here, so you, I'm not getting at anybody. Those who attend the morning service like their friends. They come because all their friends go. Those who go out in the evening, on a Sunday evening, they like the, the pastor or the minister. Ah, he's a decent fellow, we'll go along. He's going along to preach in any case, so we might as well go along. We couldn't let him down. But those who attend the prayer meeting, they love God. And it's very true that. But as I say, we don't have an evening service, so you're all right. But you know, Jesus said, it's what is at the back of your mind when you're doing things is important. It's what's there. He said in Matthew 6 and 16, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. I remember a friend of mine, who used to go on fasts. He always looked the most miserable character when he was on it. He didn't need to ask him. Was he Because <laughs> he was miserable and he told you he was miserable. You know, he told you, oh, I'm on a fast. And, you know, that's not the way it should have been. He was going to get his reward here on earth. Moreover, when ye fast, be not like the hypocrites of a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. There are two places you're going to get rewards. Either you'll get rewards for here on earth for what you do, or you'll get a reward in heaven for what you do. 
And he's saying here that if you are looking for praise from men and you get your reward from men down here on earth, when you get to heaven there'll be no reward because you've already got it. But thou when thou fastest anoint thy head and wash your face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So you really, you're going to, you're going to end up blessed twice. Because it says, if you're doing it according to the way God wants you to do it, He's going to bless you down here on earth, but you'll have a reward in heaven as well. So, God is also looking at the reason why we're doing things. If we're doing things because we want to be popular, or because we're doing it because, well, it seems to be the right thing to do, and if I go there, well, that will be, people will see me. You know, God is saying, you'll get your reward down on earth, but you won't get it in heaven. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Now, let's look just for a few moments before we finish on the chapter in 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, and it's to do with how we will gain rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, if you're doing these things just to get rewards... That's not the thing. You have to be doing these to please God, in order to please God, so that you're living a life which is pleasing to Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we read from verse 10. Paul writing to the Corinthians. Now the Corinthians, the Corinthian church wasn't an ideal church. If you read the things that were going on in the Corinthian church... They were carnal, they were immoral, they had a lot of problems. So Paul is writing to them, it's, writing to, it's like it's writing to a church here. It's the same idea, the same problems, the same difficulties. According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builders thereon. Now this is it. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. I'm a surveyor, quantity surveyor. So the first thing you start, and anybody, anybody knows this, you don't have to be a surveyor to know this. If you're going to build a house, you have to have a foundation. The foundation is the most important thing. I remember years ago, there was a high court case coming up, and the solicitor rang me on a Friday, says, there's a case on a Monday, would you go out and look at the place for me? He'd left us at the last minute. I went out to have a look at this bungalow, and there were cracks. You could put your hand into the cracks in the walls. And I went back and I said, It's terrible. Go, go to court on Monday. We were representing the builder, <laughs> and we were on a loser to start with. I said, I've never seen such cracks. Well, he said, The, the, the foundations were inspected when they dug out the trenches, they were inspected by the council. Well, then I said, We'll bring the council in. Got the council in. And they had to admit that they had inspected the foundations. Well, it's not going to bore you with the court, the, the court case. We, 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 we came off all right in the end. But the council had inspected the foundations. The foundations were wrong. It had been built on an old dump, and they hadn't realized it and the, the things that sunk. But you see, the foundations weren't right. 
And once the foundations were wrong, the whole structure on top of that was wrong. So we have to start off on the sure foundation. And the foundation, it says, that we build on is Jesus Christ. For on any other foundation no man can lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We have to, first of all, come to him and realize that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's the foundation. Because we're not on that foundation, we're not building for God. We used to sing, we are building day by day in our work and in our play. Not with hammer blow and blow, not with timber sawing sow. Building a house not made with hands, following Jesus' perfect plans. Little builders all are we, building for eternity. It's only a little kid's course, but it's very true. We're building day by day. In our work and in our play. Whatever we're doing, we're building. God is watching us. He's keeping an eye on us. He's writing down how we're building. What we're doing. We're building for eternity. Let's read on. <clears throat> now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold and silver and precious stones, a big marble structure with gold and silver and precious stones, or he might build on it something made out of wood, hay, and straw. That's roof and all the rest of it. Every man's work shall be made manifest. Eventually, whatever you build, God is going to inspect. Like a heavenly building inspector. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. Now what's going to happen? God is going to test our lives as if by fire. Whatever we have done will be tested by fire. If any man's work abide which he had built, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Yet so, as by faith, he be saved, it says, by the skin of his teeth. Basically, that's what it's saying. That's right. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. That's what the, the, the opposites are. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. You know, the thing, interesting thing about this passage is we're not told anything about the quantity. God is not saying, I want 20 tons of hay, I want so many carats of diamonds and gold. No, he's looking for quality, not quantity. Nothing about quantity here. It's quality of life the quality of how we live. The interesting thing about wood, hay and stubble, they're all bulky. Bulky things. But not necessarily very expensive. You can get a big load of straws in a shed and it looks a powerful amount, but it mightn't be worth very much. Hay the same. It looks a lot, but it mightn't be very expensive. Whereas, 
the gold and the silver and precious stones, they require hard work. Not saying that producing hay and stuff doesn't produce hard work, but in relation to the amount you get, if you're going by size, you have to do an awful lot more work to get gold and silver. It requires digging, digging into God's Word, digging into the Scriptures. A lot of hard work to mine them. You may not seem to have much to show for your work. You know, at the end of it, you got these fellows who are mining. They mine for years and maybe only have a handful of gold. Not much to show for it. But when the test comes, the test comes, it's all lit up and there's a fire. The gold will be purer. It'll even be better after fire. But the wood and the hay and the straw will have disappeared. God says, I want your life to produce gold and silver, the things that last. Not the frothy things of life, not the things of this world. I want your life. We used to sing that chorus. I want my life to tell for Jesus that everywhere I go, I may his goodness show. I want my life to tell for Jesus. And here's an important note. All will be judged. All? Yes. All. Everyone. We're not going to avoid this. We can't avoid it. Therefore, there's a good verse in Samuel. Fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things he hath done for you. The Lord hath done great things for us. Whereof we are glad. Fear the Lord. Serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things he hath done for you. And finally. And now little children. The Apostle John, writing in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28, says, Abide in him. Stay close to him. Stay with Christ. That when he shall appear, he's going to come to take us, or we will go to meet him. We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Not to be ashamed. Wouldn't it be terrible to be ashamed to meet the Lord Jesus? I remember hearing kids in Calcutta singing, and I, I don't think it's in any of our books, but it was nothing but leaves. Instead of having fruit to present the Lord Jesus, the song said all they had was nothing but leaves. And leaves are of no use to anybody. May we have fruit in our lives. 
fruit to present to the Lord Jesus when he comes so that we will not be ashamed before him at his coming. Amen. You will obviously have noticed that we mentioned in our talk today the fact of the judgment of the nations. We thought we'd just include a short portion of explanation here. When the curtain closes on the seven-year Great Tribulation, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the Jewish nation, will gloriously usher in the Day of the Lord. His second coming to earth, accompanied by his saints. Read Zechariah chapter 14 and Jude verses 12 and 13. As foretold at his ascension by two angels, his feet shall stand once again on the Mount of Olives. Acts 1 verse 11. He will come as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and incidentally he'll be the chief Jew to set up his millennium kingdom, bring in a time of restitution of all things, Acts 3 verse 21, and a reign of righteousness and judgment. Anti-Semitism will have reached very dangerous levels. The Antichrist and Satan, leading a vast army of demonic and world powers, will have gathered that Jerusalem against Israel. And all will seem hopeless for the encircled Jews. Christ and his heavenly angelic army will fight for and rescue his people. The enormous battle at Armageddon will last for one very unusual day and the satanic forces will be destroyed, their carcasses covering the vast plain of Megiddo. Satan will be consigned to the bottomless pit for a thousand years. The Antichrist and false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire. A godly remnant of Jews will recognize Jesus as their true Messiah. Zechariah 12.10 And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And then he will set up his millennium kingdom. The judgment of the nations will then take place as described by our Lord in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one to 46 This parable has frequently been misinterpreted 
as the general resurrection and final judgment in most churches, creeds and Bibles. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Now the almost universal belief is that the sheep represent all the people of God from all time while the goats typify the wicked from the first to the last. So we will take a very brief look at this event pictured here. We are not talking about individuals but of the living nations. Most translations leave the the out but it was in the original manuscripts but omitted by the translators. So all the living nations, the Gentiles, are gathered here. Obviously Israel is not included with those being judged. You read in Numbers 23 verse 9 and speaking of Israel it says they shall not be reckoned among the nations. Therefore straight off any idea that this is in any way a general resurrection or final judgment of anyone must be abandoned. In this instance we have the judgment of the quick, the living. The judgment of the dead will occur very much later when our Lord shall judge the dead, small and great, at the end of the millennium. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1 is an interesting verse. I testify before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. But there is a third separate group present at this parable ignored by most commentators but named by Jesus these my brethren the Jews the saved remnant of Israel this people suffered and still do at the hands of the nations by hunger thirst estrangement, sickness, imprisonment, persecution, deprivation. Jesus explains that these nations will be judged according to how they treated these my brethren. How perfectly this event is prophesied in Joel 3 and verses 1 and 2. For behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, 
I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. What could be clearer? To say the judging of the nations here can be a picture of a final judgment when all are not being judged. There are no dead. All are living. Or of a general resurrection when no one is resurrected. It's absurd. A comparison with Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15 should be studied. Christ will rule on the throne of David from Jerusalem. Many psalms and passages of scripture will then become so clear, declaring a righteous and sometimes fearful judgment coming forth from Zion. Psalm 2 Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers shall take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me. And I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are they that put their trust in him. Psalm 14, verse 7. O oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. Notice here and elsewhere, the salvation shall come out of Zion, not out of the church. Psalm 110 verse 2, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, rule thou 
in the midst of thine enemies. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Psalm 128 verse 5. Isaiah 2 verse 3. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isaiah 12 verse 6 Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. And finally, Isaiah 18, verse 7. In that time shall the present be brought unto the Lord of hosts of a people scattered and peeled, and from a people terrible from their beginning hitherto. A nation meted out and trodden underfoot, whose land the rivers have spoiled, to a place of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Mount Zion. An old friend of ours, a one-time Jewish rabbi, and he said some very interesting points, which are very opposite in this particular case. He said, remember, the Bible is an Eastern book, and therefore you must not read into it Western thought. For if you do, you will bring confusion. But look at God's book from an Eastern point of view, and through Eastern eyes, and it will become to you a wonderfully simple, clear book. Before our Lord came in the flesh, the human family was divided into two, the Jew and the Gentile. But since the day of Pentecost, the human family has become divided in three, the Jew, the Gentile, and the Church of God. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32. In view of the above division, he says, you must study the Word of God from three points of view. What God's purposes are for the Jew or Israel? What are God's purposes for the Gentile? What are his purposes for the church? If you keep these separate, you will save a great deal of confusion. Do not forget that the Jew is not the Gentile. Neither is the Gentile the Church. For in the Church there is neither Jew nor Gentile, but the new creation in Christ. Do not read Israel into the Church, nor the Church into Israel, nor the Gentile nations into Israel or the Church. For if you do not carefully study this way, 
you will not rightly divide the word of truth. Remember, God has a heavenly people and an earthly people. Do not confuse the two. Who are the heavenly people? The church of God whom he is calling out of all peoples, a twice-born people, his new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 14-21. His heavenly people, the church, has a heavenly outlook, with a heavenly heritage, with a glorious heavenly kingdom before which all earthly glory fades. He goes on. God also has an earthly people. Who are his earthly people? Of course, all the sons of Jacob. This people is still a scattered nation among the Gentiles, still without a king. Hosea 3 verse 4. Nationally, they are still in unbelief and therefore without Christ. But God will once again gather them and they will be converted to Christ and during the millennium they will become God's instrument in leading the then living Gentile nations to Christ. But remember their promises are all earthly blessings for an earthly people and for an earthly kingdom. And that awaits fulfilment for them until they are converted at the coming of Christ in glory and majesty and power. For the clear understanding of the scriptures, do not mix them up with God's heavenly people, the church, who will have been caught up previous to Christ's coming for Israel. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18 so, if you are a member of the Church of God, you will be taken out of this scene at the coming of Christ for his Church. Remember also that God's earthly people will not see God's face until they pass through great afflictions, a time called in the Bible the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 30 verse 17. Also called the great tribulation. Matthew 24 verse 21 and Revelation 7 14. Therefore we find in Hosea these words. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offence. And seek my face. In their afflictions they will seek me early. Hosea 5.15 This prophet spoke the prophecy to and of Israel. In fact, this tribulation is not only going to be a time of sorrow to God's earthly people, Israel, but to all the Christ-rejecting world, for it will be worldwide, as can be seen in Isaiah 24. A knowledge of Jewish customs and Jewish history 
is, of course, most helpful when reading the Bible and the study of Jewish laws and sacrifices brings the New Testament alive when viewed as we see them perfected in our Lord Jesus Christ. As the last prophet John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John 1.29 As you have just read, the Jews will experience a very troubled period, but eventually a wonderful thing will happen. The fulfilment of all the prophecies relating to the millennium and the promises given to the patriarchs, including the sure mercies of David. Isaiah 55 and verse 3 Incline your ear and come unto me and hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. In Acts 13 and verse 34. And as concerning that he raised up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Second Samuel 7 verse 10 and then verses 12 to 16. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, this is God speaking to David, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul whom I put away before thee, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established for ever before thee. Thy throne shall be established for ever. The throne about which God spoke to David here will be established forever. And Christ will rule on that throne during the millennium kingdom and that's it I hope that helps you understand what this judging of the nations really means 
Thank you.